0: We've followed Abraham through 62 years of his life. By this point in the story, he's become a model, a prime example of what it means to be truly human. To be someone who loves God with all of your heart, to be someone who is completely loyal to the Creator. And when we look at Abraham in Genesis 22, like we did last week, this climactic moment in the life of Abraham, we see there that Abraham's entire life is centered around his love for Yahweh, the one and only God, the creator of all things. And so in our passage this morning, Genesis 23, we see some of the ways that this kind of total allegiance this kind of being a true human loving the creator completely we see some of the ways this plays out in the concrete details of life now the first way this plays out that we see in this chapter is kind of surprising abraham's faith in god increases his pain in death Abraham's faith in the creator heightens his suffering when Sarah dies let me show you what I mean like I said at the beginning of our service there has been a lot of death in the Bible up to this point from Cain killing Abel right on through but there has been no mention of grief in the Bible Now, it's conspicuous in its absence because there's been plenty of mention of other strong emotions, jealousy, hatred, lust, anger, but no account of grief until now. And for the first time in the Bible, we have a scene of mourning. Genesis one. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. A double statement of his mourning. If you have been with us, you remember once when God renamed Sarah and foretold of her childbirth. Abraham had laughed the Bible's first laugh. And now Sarah dies and Abraham sheds the Bible's first tears. It's as if God's promises to Abraham To create a new future, to deal with evil, to heal creation, to overcome the barrenness that has resulted from sin. It's as if the brightness of these promises have thrown into stark relief the tyranny of death. Abraham trusts in Yahweh, the one and only God, the creator, and that this God will do what he has promised to do. He will heal. He will restore, he will make all things new, he will undo chaos, he will undo the, 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 the climactic terrible nature of sin, he will restore the world to its original purpose which is shalom. The interweaving of humans, creation and God in a relationship of flourishing and delight. God is going to restore that. He's going to restore all of creation to a state of flourishing and fecundity of life and joy and goodness. And when he completes this work, death will have no role to play. It will not be there. It will be swallowed up and destroyed by God's mighty rescue operation. And so when Abraham lives his life on these promises. He knows we were created for fellowship with God. And not for death. Not for the grave. And when you live a life walking in the promises of a renewed creation. Then you see death as an anguishing defeat, an unnecessary blow, a cruel counterstrike by an enemy that's in retreat. It's a retreating army pillaging along the way. It's Hitler at the end of the war killing unnecessarily all of those people. It's Dietrich Bonhoeffer dying in April of 1945. This is, an, this is the irony of Christian faith. Belief in God's promises heightens the pain of death. The victory of the cross intensifies our sense of death's wrongful place in this world. And faith in the resurrection of the dead sharpens our loss at the graveside. The ancient Greeks and Romans, they understood the paradoxical relationship of hope and grief. Seneca, one of the Roman philosophers of Stoicism, he said, Stop hoping and you'll stop fearing. Ancient Roman Stoicism said, Lower your expectations and you minimize your disappointments. Just accept the reality of fate, Seneca said, And death won't be so shocking. And this perspective, it's having a revival in our post-Christian culture. I see it when I read the hard-nosed realism of authors like Cormac McCarthy and Larry McMurtry in the New Western novels that are just brilliant, But, but they're in their at the deep center of them, it's a revival of ancient Roman Stoicism. This idea that our world is a speck. And that human history is nothing more than an insignificant moment on the timeline of the universe, and death is inevitable. It is natural. So, yeah, we face the psychological pain of loss, but since death is a non negotiable fact, learn to accept the inevitable. This is not Christianity. In the Bible, death is not natural, it is unacceptable. It is not original, and it will have no role to play. It is a parasite. So you see, faith in God's promises to make all things new, to heal this world, this faith blocks the therapy of hopelessness that teaches us to endure with stoicism, life's vicissitudes. When we come to know God, the stakes are raised. Pain and suffering are more real Because the victory is more certain. This is one of the reasons Christians mourn so deeply at the graveside. And this is why it is unhelpful to offer easy platitudes about a pie in the sky religion to people who are in the throes of grief. The promise and sureness of this world being healed and delivered from sin and evil and death, this makes our sorrow and grief even more intense. I'm convinced this is the reason the first scene of grief shows up after a man has lived a life shaped by the promises. Hope increases sorrow. Faith heightens grief. And yet Abraham doesn't weep forever. Look at Genesis 23 verse 3. And Abraham rose up before his dead. And he said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead from my sight. You see, Abraham cannot remain bowed down before Sarah's corpse forever. Death cuts us. It brings deep and lasting pain, but it will not dictate the course of a life shaped by the promises. Because as powerful as death is, the God who makes these promises is more powerful. It's a strange thing to read of Abraham saying that he needs to bury Sarah from his sight. What we're seeing in the life of Abraham is that being a Christian is learning to trust, to orient your life around the promises and the work of God in Christ for the renewal of all things. To be a Christian is to come, yes, to see the utter imposter death. The utter strangeness of death. But we don't make peace with the dark destiny of the grave. And we don't surrender to it as if it's natural. No, we put the dead Sarah out of our sight. Not with a therapy of forgetfulness. No, in fact, look what happens next. The bulk of this chapter, Genesis twenty-three, is not the the intricate details of ancient Near Eastern mourning. Instead, it is the intricate details of ancient Near Eastern bargaining. Did you pick that up? The whole chapter is legalese. It's the negotiation over a land trans- transaction. And notice how Abraham begins his bid for the property. Verse 4, Abraham says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. He is legally, he's stating his legal status. This is his legal situation. He's not a full citizen. He's a resident alien. And then as now, there are some hard facts to this reality. And in this particular society, resident aliens cannot purchase real estate. Except on very rare occasions. And when they are allowed on very rare occasions. They are never allowed to purchase land in perpetuity. They are not allowed to own it permanently. It cannot be inherited. And on top of these legal issues. Ancient Near Eastern landowners were very reluctant to part with their property. As my grandfather would say. He's not making any more of it. The land is looked upon in the ancient Near Eastern society as an ancestral trust. And when you have a society with a strong sense of communal solidarity, then you have this sense that allowing a foreigner to own some of the land will upset the local demographic balance. And you don't upset the demographic balance because it can impair social cohesion, which is necessary to survival against the other city over there that's always gunning for us. You see, upsetting social cohesion weakens a tribal culture. This is why Abraham had to begin his negotiations by not only stating his position, his status, but gaining the permission of the city before he ever even went to the landowner. Because he had to have permission of the social unit. That landowner, Ephron, had to have permission of the community before he could even enter into a deal. But the point is to not only notice This is the first account of mourning and to ask yourself why. But then to ask the natural question, if it's the first account of mourning, why so little attention to the mourning and why so much attention to the transaction? What is the author communicating by minimizing the grief experience and maximizing the business transaction? Well, to discover the answer to this, you've got to notice another absence. Isaac's conspicuous absence. He's nowhere to be found in Genesis 23. In fact, Genesis 23 is the only chapter between Genesis 21, Isaac's birth, and Genesis 28 where Isaac is not mentioned. I think what's happening is that there's been a rupture in his relationship with Abraham. Now, I don't. I, read, I wrote several versions of this sermon. The one where I show you how that happens is too long for Baptism Sunday. <laughs> so if you want me to show you where in the passage there's been this rupture, it's there in the texture of the literature. Come and talk to me after the service. But let me just kind of get it out there and, and, and build the rest of this point around it. There's been some sort of rupture between Abraham and Isaac. And so Abraham can't teach his son face to face anymore. From now on, he has to find a way to teach Isaac indirectly. So this burial plot that Abraham is buying, it's not just for Sarah. It's for the family. And this is going to be something to teach Isaac how to live with the Creator. And what will this burial plot say to Isaac? When Isaac visits his mother's tomb and when Abraham dies and wherever Isaac is living, he comes back to this place to bury his father. And then when he himself makes arrangements to be buried there, what is happening? I I, I think what's going on here is that Isaac is compelled to think of his history. Almost all of the important promises made to Abraham were made around this grave. The oak at Mamre. And so what Abraham is doing is he's setting up something that will compel Isaac to think of his miraculous birth out of the barrenness of Abraham and Sarah. This place where this tomb is located where all of the wonderful promises of God to Abraham that through him he's going to heal and renew and remake all things. The promise of land and descendants and blessing. It all happened in this place. So Abraham is anchoring Isaac to the land by permanently establishing the family burial site. He's setting up Isaac for the strong teacher called memory. If Isaac is going to continue to walk in the way of the Lord, he's got to learn to look back. He needs to let the life and deeds of Abraham and Sarah pass before his mind. And hopefully, as they do, to allow them to shape the way he lives. And this is nothing new. To Christians, biblical faith is largely a matter of memory. Memory is the taproot of the Christian life. Through memory, each generation of believers comes face to faith, face to face, with what it means to live and walk in holiness and in faith. Through memory, we return to the heartland of Christianity, wherever we have wandered. This is how Abraham is forming Isaac in the faith. Abraham is an old man. And God has promised that through him, his descendants, he's going to renew all things. But that's only one. And Abraham's about to leave. And he's wondering, he's figuring, how can I shape my son, my only son, who all of this agenda will hang on when I die? Who's been here for so precious little of it. How can I shape him? How can I form him in the faith? He's got to remember. But here's the catch. Remembering needs remembering. You've got to remember to remember. We need to be moved to remember. We've got to be provoked to remember or we'll forget to remember. So rituals and tangible symbols, these are the handmaidens of memories. That's what it means to be human. It means rituals and tangible symbols become the handmaidens of memories. And this is one of the key reasons our Lord Jesus Christ not only gave us a gospel to be preached, but he gave us the ritual of the Lord's Supper because gospel preaching is not enough to be a christian is to rest your entire life on the lord jesus christ on his death and his resurrection and the church is called to keep our lord jesus his death his resurrection as the focal point of our life together our witness our service and how do we protect ourselves from drifting off base christ-centered preaching is not enough The churches who don't do Eucharist every Sunday are a recent phenomenon in church history. And the jury is still out. The jury is still out. It is not enough. And only the arrogance of a culture overly impressed with its own intellect think that you can hold a group together without ritual. So Jesus left his church, not only a gospel to be preached, but a weekly ritual of bread and water and wine. We've got to remember to remember rituals, tangible symbols. These are the handmaidens of memory. Advent is coming. (laughs) The heat is coming. Advent is coming. It begins in four weeks. This year it starts on the last Sunday of November. I hope you'll discover some of the wonderful, creative rituals and symbols of this time of the year. We'll talk about them as a church. Ways to bring the life and deeds of our forefathers and the death and resurrection of Christ right into our homes and into our memories. Why? so that we can love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and with all of our strength if if God is going to get into all the corners of your life you've got to drive it there so the narrator's point of view does not focus on Sarah's death but on Abraham's firm and binding purchase of a tomb and one reason is for the formation of Isaac so that he can be formed and the way of life can pass into the next generation but there's another reason god had promised abraham and his descendants possession of this land and now abraham is living in the land but he doesn't own any of it he owns a well but he doesn't own any of the land we saw a few weeks ago his his very kind of persnickety insistence on this well but now it gets blown up even larger where he's pr- trying to get land. You see, God's promise to Abraham was all of the land. And it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And this is why if you read closely, you'll see the key sticking point in the negotiation between Abraham and the Hittites. And then even, is, is not just for a tomb, but for permanent land. Land. And then when he gets to Ephraim face to face, it's not to be given it as a gift because that is highly contestable by Ephron's children. <laughs> if they show up on the scene and say, that's our land. No, Abraham goes through an oral cultures legal binding contract. Why? Because it's this distinction between property for a burial site and a tomb. This is what matters to Abraham. You see, God's full gift of the land lies beyond the lifetime of Abraham and Sarah. So by purchasing this little piece of it now, Abraham is living in faith. He's living in hope. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah, they will all express their faith in the full inheritance by being buried in this grave. The purchase of this first real piece of real estate is a deposit on the future possession of the whole land. Purchasing this land, this is an expression of Abraham's faith that his descendants will inherit the entire land. This is Abraham's faith in God, that God will keep his word. And just like God, Abraham trusted God, To raise Isaac from the dead. In his own wife's burial, he trusts God again. He trusts that God will give the land to his descendants. And by the way, there is only one other place in the Bible where such elaborate care is taken over the deed of a land. Jeremiah 32. We're not going to turn there now, but in that passage... The interpretation of the elaborate focus is given. Here it is. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now again, I can't go into all the details. But the point is this. Both Abraham and Jeremiah buy the land as a sign that the land has a future for the people of God. Psalm thirty-seven, eleven: the meek shall inherit the land, the earth, and delight themselves in abundant shalom. Abundant flourishing, embodied real flourishing. At the heart of the Christian faith is the firm knowledge that this is my father's world. And God will heal this world, this planet, this valley, this community, this land. And so this earth, this land has a future. And those who love King Jesus and live lives of allegiance to his kingdom, they will inherit the land when Christ returns. Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Where? To this land. To this earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on this earth as it is. Jesus didn't teach us to pray. God take us away from this earth. Jesus taught us to pray. God take evil away from this earth. And give this earth to us. Christianity is not the end of the world. It is the healing of the world. Are you treating this land in the way that someone would who believes this land is our land. Is your voting and eating and living reflective of someone who believes there is a future for this land and it is connected to your future? Until you know the relationship between the tree outside your window and the forgiveness of your sins, you've not yet gotten to the heart of Christianity. Christians should be at the forefront of the complex issues around ecology. The work of Alec Bowserman and Russ Coors as earth science teachers in our public schools. They are full-time missionaries. Not on telling students that they can be saved, but on convincing students that this land matters. And that the way we live in relation to this land matters. To learn about this earth, to learn how to live in concert... With this land. This this is at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of why Jesus died. And we see Abraham after a lifetime of being shaped by God's promises. Turning to the land. We need to support and encourage Russ in his desire to impact our nation's policy with regard to earth science education. This is the third point. Christianity works out in concrete acts of faith toward the renewed earth. Christianity looks to the past in memory. We look back to Jesus on the cross and in his resurrected body, we see the first fruit of a renewed creation. And so this helps us to look forward, to orient our lives toward the new heavens and new earth. How is our community treating the land? How are you working out your faith in the concrete details of your relationship to the land? How are you banking on the fact that the meek shall inherit the earth? So from Abraham, we learn that Christian faith heightens the pain of death. Christian faith is formed through memory, and Christian faith acts in concrete ways toward the new heaven and the new earth. It's funny, and I'll close with this. Our passage this morning is focused on a burial, and in just a couple of minutes, we're going to baptize Lucas and Zach Swift. It's a funny coincidence. That this is the passage we've come to in our series through the life of Abraham. It's funny because like we heard in the passage Christine read to us. Romans chapter 6. Baptism is a figure of death. We heard in Romans 6.3. All who are baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are baptized into the death of Christ. And by being ritually buried into the death of Christ in baptism, Romans 6 4 says, we are guaranteed to rise from the dead like Christ did. Abraham Abraham buried his wife Sarah in faith. We this morning, in just a moment, will bury Lucas and Zach in faith. Trusting God. That he will raise them from the baptismal waters to new life in Christ. And one day when Jesus returns and all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Then he will raise Lucas and Zach with new bodies to inherit the earth. Let's pray.